afternoon again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. My name is Jeffrey Kwame. I'm your host, and as you know, the Executive Director of the Connecticut Certification Board. This podcast comes to you thanks to the generosity of our friends up at Mountainside Treatment Center in Canaan, Connecticut, where they provide individualized clinical, medical, and wellness services to those struggling with substance use and mental health disorders. Each treatment plan is structured through collaboration with the client, their family, and healthcare professionals to offer every client the best chance at long-term recovery. Mountainside is proud to be the only rehabilitation center in the state to be accredited by both CARF International and the Joint Commission. Right now, Mountainside is currently recruiting passionate and talented individuals for its Connecticut and New York locations. Every employee, regardless of position, plays a role in improving the lives of clients and their families. If you're interested in joining the Mountainside team, please visit mountainside.com slash careers. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. I start with a statement that although uncomfortable, shouldn't be of any surprise to those of us, and it's supported by research, that our workforce has long been plagued by shortages, high turnover, a lack of diversity, and concerns about its effectiveness. I'll go one step further and say that the concerns about our effectiveness have been verified. A meta-analysis of outcome studies done by Dr. Scott Miller has shown that we have not had a significant change in treatment outcomes since 1976. Some of you may not have been born in 1976. Part of the problem that I surmise is the lack of professional education that focuses on substance use disorder treatment, a problem that was mentioned in a study over 20 years ago and still rings true today. At present, there are only a handful of graduate programs specifically in SUD studies and only about 30 clinical social work programs that offer SUD specializations, which is really only about 14% of all of the social work programs nationally. Although there are multiple roles in the prevention, treatment, and recovery industry that are open to those with different educational experiential levels, clinical positions should be staffed by culturally competent, mastered, prepared professionals only. Until we grasp this reality fully and recognize the importance of role integrity, I doubt we can expect to see significant changes in outcomes. Our guest today is Dr. Shane Murphy. Dr. Murphy is a professor of psychology at Western Connecticut State University in Danbury, where he teaches clinical sport and health psychology. He's the graduate coordinator of the MS and Addiction Studies, a program he helped develop in 2019. Shane was formerly head of the United States Olympic Committee's Sports Psychology Department and worked with the USA team at the 88, 92, and 96 Olympics. He is past president of the Society of Sport, Exercise, and Performance Psychology of the APA and received their Bruce Ogilvie Career Achievement Award in Applied Sports Psychology in 2008. He is a fellow of the American Psychological Association and received the Distinguished Professional Practice Award in Sports Psychology in 2000 from the Association of Applied Sports Psychology. His books include the Oxford Handbook of Sport and Performance Psychology, Sports Psychology Interventions, the Sports Psych Handbook, the Achievement Zone, and the Cheers and the Tears. Given the invite, he has given invited addresses in more than 10 countries including Japan, Belgium, Australia, Portugal, Ireland, and South Korea. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us today, Dr. Murphy. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a great pleasure. As we begin, 
Can you talk about the dearth of professional graduate education and substance use disorder counseling in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a clinical psychologist. I was trained, uh, actually came to the United States in 1980 to get my Ph.D. at Rutgers University. And uh, Nicholas Gallucci, Lindsay Oberleitner, Janan Wyatt, the, the faculty on uh, at, at Western were all clinical psychologists. And, um, you know, when we look back at, at our training and, and compare notes with other colleagues in the field, it's almost shameful, really, the lack of attention to substance use disorder training that we get. I was very lucky at Rutgers. I was assigned in my first day uh, to the Center for Alcohol Studies. And so I did a lot of training under Peter Nathan and Terry Wilson uh, in, in uh, alcohol research, which was, you know, a, a wonderful start in my career. But it's it's still rare. And, and speaking to colleagues in other professions, um, you know, they say similar things. I think social work maybe is the furthest along, as you were saying in your introduction, but uh, we got a long way to go. When I was in social work school in the mid-90s, um, there was one substance use disorder class, and it was simply called addiction. And depending on what your major was, you could fit it in or not, because it, for me, it didn't work in any of my coursework. I, I had conflicting classes that I had to take, so I wasn't able to do that. But thankfully, UConn had done a program with Peter Lynch from the Shoreline on substance use studies, and that was separate, and I was able to do that as well to gain the information. Yeah, that's that's not unusual, I think. What are some of, you know, besides the obvious reasons, what are some of the reasons that we really need to expand these offerings in substance use disorder studies? Well, when we started seriously looking at this, you know, about six or seven years ago, um, I mean, one of the things we realized, like, you need so much specialized and focused training to be effective, you know, in interventions in this area. And, you know, you look at some of the things that, you know, the field is either moving towards or has, has um, embraced, you know, person-centered treatment, um, long-term focus on recovery, uh, recovery support, um, you know, the need to work with co-occurring disorders, you know, comorbid substance use, um, other mental health conditions, uh, evidence-based treatment, you know, which is the backbone of our program, um, cultural competence, uh, medication-assisted treatment is such a big thing. Um, trauma-informed care, working with families, um, working with infectious diseases, um, you know, working with those who are uh, housing challenged. <laughs> There's just so many areas. And really, if it, I, we didn't feel like if you didn't have a whole program devoted to that, there's just no, like you can't cover all that in one course. So, you know, that's what, that's really where the penny dropped. And we said, we, we really need to put this together. I think that as, as we've seen more attention paid to co-occurring disorders over the last 20 years or so, actually, I think in 2007 or 2008, this Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services here in Connecticut really came forward with a lot of the COSIG grants and, and promoted a lot of co-occurring education. But what we're seeing now is even more that the folks that we treat in our publicly funded system, which is a majority, um, have been an incredibly high percentage of co-occurring disorders compared to the those not seeking, uh, that are not in treatment or are receiving treatment in some private facilities, but they have their share as well. So the fact that we are addressing it is really important because they're the individuals that we see and help every day. Absolutely. And again, that I think is something our field has been a little slow on. You know, there was a, for a long time, really sort of a siloed approach where it was like you couldn't even get 
addiction services, you know, if you had um, mental health and vice versa, you know, they, they wouldn't let you into mental health programs. It's like, oh, you, you, you know, you have an addiction, you know, you're dirty, you know, and you can't, you can't come into our program. So we, we really have to fight that. And um, again, you know, modern approaches say it only works if you treat both together and acknowledge the impact of each on the other. And experientially, I've seen that. And many people know that in 1990, I lost my brother to a self-inflicted overdose. Um, he could not, for so long, he could not get into substance use treatment because of symptomology of depression. Things affected his ability to show up on time and things. And he couldn't get into any psychiatric treatment because all of his urines were positive and they wanted negative urines. That's well, right. Ultimately, he did. They did find a program that was willing to look at both, but due to some medical issues and he found out he was HIV positive and it was enough for him in 1990, he, he took his own life. Would I say that if there was more co-occurring treatment, would he be alive today? I don't know, but I know we'd have a better chance. So to me that's, to see this happening is really important. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a pretty powerful story. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, specifically related to the development of the Master of Science in Addiction Studies at Western, um, what drove you and your colleagues to kind of develop that course of study? Well, we've been training um, addiction counselors for about 25 years, and it's largely thanks to Dr. Nicholas Gallucci, uh, who started the um, undergraduate course sequence, which is a 16-credit sequence. It's four courses, and it covers everything that you need for the KDAC in, in Connecticut. Um, and But the feedback we were getting from our graduates was if you wanted to go on for licensure, um, there were just not many supports for LADC training in Connecticut. Uh, a lot of people were saying it's very piecemeal. You know, you go here for this workshop and take a course there and do a little supervision here with this, you know, and a very frustrating process. So it was really a lot of the feedback was from our students, like, could you build on what you already have and develop something in-house which does the LADC training. Um, so actually back in 2016, we put together um, an advisory committee. It was uh, Richard Fisher from Demas, their um, um, Office of Workforce Development Director. Who's retiring in June 30th. Yeah, I'm he's sure. He's my contract administrator at the CCB and he's retiring. Sure, he's very happy about that. Um, Richard Radoshia, who was the, the chief clinical officer at MCCA at the time, and Joseph yep. Conrad, uh, who's one of our adjunct faculty, who's the director of compliance and performance improvement at um, Connecticut Valley Hospital. So uh, they gave us a tremendous, and, and we met with you, Jeffrey. Um, I, you know, remember you coming over to my office. I'm just looking for a little bit of press on this, so. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, and we really listened to the folks that were out in the field and had their boots on the ground, and said, and you know, and all of us them were telling us, you know, we ha we have a tremendous need for trained professionals. Um, it's just very difficult to get, you know, really highly trained professionals, and uh, so that was a big driving force uh, for us as well. Was the feedback we were getting from those folks as you were developing the program? What were some of the resources that you used? Did you look at other programs and? Um, get ideas on what they were doing and that sure. sort of thing. Absolutely. You know, you want to be, you want to be state of the art. Um, as I said, you know, a lot of what we tried to build in was, was based on fee feedback from people like, you know, Richard Fisher and Radocia and, and yourself about what current needs are of people who are actually, you know, working as LADC in the field. Um, but we looked at, there's an excellent program at the university of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. 
uh, a Master of Science uh, in Addiction Studies. And there was you know, a few other programs, Colorado State University, uh, University of North Dakota, uh, Capella University has, has an online program, which was interesting to look at. So uh, you know, we certainly begged, borrowed, and stealed the best things from any program that, that we could find. And uh, luckily now there's some new resources coming online, like uh, APA uh, got a SAMHSA grant to develop a curriculum for psychology students uh, in substance use disorders. And we're actually utilizing that in our program right now. It's, we're one of the trial sites for their, for their grant. So uh, it's, that is encouraging to see, I think, in our field that um, there's now more promotion of serious attention to substance use disorders in fields like psychology. Well, I, I would venture to guess that uh, the new focus among psychologists has a little bit to do with Dr. Arthur Evans and his background, um, currently being the CEO of the American Psychological Association. Those in Connecticut know Dr. Evans as having a, a big, big part of recovery-oriented systems of care along with Dr. Tom Kirk um, and taking the, the a very def, uh, broken system in Philadelphia and turning the entire city system into one strong recovery-oriented system of care. Uh, so I know that's an interest that lies within Absolutely. him. Absolutely. And he is tremendous. I've gotten to know Arthur very well because um, I do a lot of work with the APA as a volunteer. Um, in fact, I served on their board of um, uh, you know, uh, professional development for the, about six years as, as my council rep for that uh, Society of Sport and uh, Performance Psychology. So, um, and he's tremendous, you know, and he has that background and he has that, that interface of you know, understanding the problem, but also understanding the public health needs and, and the difficulty of, of implementing it you know, in a large urban community. And uh, that's, that's really fantastic for our field, I think, to have that. And also, you know, just really understanding um, underserved minorities and, and uh, you know, their needs. One of the things that I learned from Dr. Evans and from some of the individuals that, he, that worked with him in Philadelphia was about how you take research and implement it into practice. That's not, it's, it's a natural step, but we've seen less of that in this field to date. Um, you know, we're starting to see it more, I guess, over the last 10 or 15 years. But for a while, research kind of stayed in its own in in its own little bubble. But yes, with with things like the NIDA initiatives, we are seeing it uh, getting out into practice. And as we talked about, our dear departed Kathy Carroll was a big uh, played a big role in that. Um, and she and she showed the way, you know, which is like. As scientists, you know, researchers need to learn how to talk to clinicians. And I don't think they were very good in our field at that. And uh, so, you know, I think research accepts some of the blame as well. It's not just the clinicians weren't listening and weren't ready to hear about research, but, you know, we need to develop a really good dialogue and, and collaboration. I'd love to talk and learn about research, but when you start talking about Cronbach's uh, alpha <laughs> you, you've lost me. But Listen, you, you talk about results and evidence and things that I'm with you. <laughs> you. You don't even need to get to Cronbach's Alpha when, you know, our graduate students come from a variety of backgrounds and some of them have just come out of our undergraduate program. And so they got research methods dripping out their ears, you know, that they're, they're totally comfortable. But we have folks coming in that haven't been in school in 20 years, 
And you start talking about the difference between the mean, the median, and the mode, and their eyes start rolling. So <laughs> you really, yeah, you know, really have to do a crash course in remedial research appreciation. It had been twenty years since I had done any research work in social work school, and I recently did uh, a couple of years ago completed a master's in, in nonprofit leadership, which also required statistics. And all I could remember at that point is that if I flip a coin. There's a 50% chance it's going to be heads, no matter how many times. No I matter how it. many times, right. <laughs> That's all I can remember. <laughs> There's that great scene at the beginning of the play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, where he's just tossing the coin. It comes up heads, you know, like 50 times in a row. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that I think in our field, and, and I've been in this field since the, the late 80s, is one of the things that we battle is we have a pretty significant credibility issue compared to other behavioral health professions most notably in terms of professionalism and things of that nature. How do programs like yours challenge that perception, challenge that credibility issue? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, and I think professionalism is having pride in your identity and having a really strong you know, um, training in ethics and professionalism. So we, we make sure that one of the very first courses that our students take in their first semester is a course in professional development and ethics. And, um, you know, I think because we're all clinical psychologists, that sort of comes naturally to us because, you know, uh, APA and its code of ethics, you get sort of pounded that into you in, in uh, APA uh, programs right from day one. But it is, it is really important and uh, it's so practical, right? And you, you're talking about the everyday issues and the, and the tough decisions. That's what ethics is all about. It's like, you know, you can make this decision or this decision. This one could take you in a horrible direction, which is really harmful for the client, you know, and this one could take you to a really positive outcome. So um, we rely on, on uh, the resources that are out there that we, we, do, we do emphasize the APA code of ethics. We also emphasize, uh, you know, obviously the NADAC um, code of ethics, which is, is being updated, I think. Um, you're a great resource, the CCB. Um, so I think we're moving in the right direction in this field, but uh, it is something that in our program, we feel that that is a strength of our graduates is that we want them to come out with a tremendous sense of professionalism. And one of the things that, that is an interest of mine that we've started to talk to my board about is we need to change the paradigm in how we talk about ethics. We can't just talk about ethics based on somebody's behavior. It has to be an ongoing conversation. It's not like policies and procedures where you suddenly sign a form that says you won't do online gambling on your work computer. Well, you sign that because somebody did it. This is something that has to be part of our everyday conversation so that it becomes a part of the workday. It becomes part of our work with clients. And it really becomes a much more positive discussion than we're having it. Yeah. Ethics are looked at as boring and, and yes. menial when they really aren't. They're ultimately exciting because they drive our work. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's exactly the perspective. I, I've always loved actually studying ethics because you're talking about real life scenarios and, so, and some of the situations that are the most challenging and make you think. And the other thing that I think we have to be really careful of is thinking like there's a code of ethics that will answer all your questions. No. That gives you a set of principles, right? But to really 
be ethical. You have to have a set of practices as a professional of things like, you know, having good mentoring, having good colleagues that you can, you can trust and talk about these things with, uh, being open to acknowledging when there might be uh, an issue, even though it might be really difficult to talk about and challenging. So it's really much more, as you said, I think, you know, just it's everyday practice rather than saying, oh, you know, I got to do what this code that's handed down on these tablets from, you know, Mount Sinai or wherever, you know? Yeah, it's not a cookbook. It's not a menu. Not. I think my first interest in ethics, looking at it a little bit differently, was when I was a, a, an intern in social work school that we were doing intakes at a, a mental health clinic. And one of the clinicians had presented the information to our, our consulting psychiatrist about the individual that he had just sat with. And he says, whoever works with this individual, it'll be a joy to work with them. They seem really motivated. He goes, but it can't be me because I'm instantly attracted to her. And as a student, that threw me off because I was very rigid and saying, wow, he's wrong. But my supervisor uh, for the internship had said, no, what he is is honest and brave. Yes. He admitted yeah. his humanity and said, we need to get this this young person the right help. Yeah. Somebody yeah. Who, can, who can get past my counter-transference. And that kind of blew me away, and, and it opened, that was great. It opened that was up great. my interest in countertransference. I was going to say, it's good that you got that, you know, exposure early because that's a that's you know so important to be able to start recognizing that from day one. And my my inappropriate opinion of it was corrected immediately, and I'm grateful for that because it it opened up my eyes to a lot of different things and looking at things from a different perspective, not so rigid as right wrong. Well, I wouldn't even say an inappropriate perspective. It's an undeveloped perspective, right? That's the whole p process of, of being a professional is you you start to get a higher and higher level of understanding of what's going on. You know, as we talk about things like uh, professionalism, one of the things that jumps out is, is to me is that despite the fact that we have over 60 years of research on the efficacy of medications to treat opioid use disorder, there are still pockets in the field of paraprofessionals and professionals who have an anti-medication bias. It warmed my heart to see that you discuss medication-assisted uh, treatment and recovery in one of your programs. Can you talk about that that class a little bit? Well, it's not just the class, right? We, we talk about MAT um, throughout every course in, in all of the what, how many courses we have, 11 courses, you know, in the program. So, um, and, you know, we have this big grant from HRSA. Uh, we're actually able to pay uh, a stipend to our students when they're on internship, which is just wonderful. It's a four-year grant. And uh, and that's one of the emphasis of, of that grant is uh, on training students in medication-assisted treatment. So they want people out in um, placements where they're going to going to get exposed for, uh, to that. You know, it's interesting. I did an undergraduate internship in psychology back in Sydney, Australia. So I don't even want to say what decade um, that was, but ABBA were a big thing in that decade. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it was at a methadone uh, maintenance facility. And uh, it, it was much more widely accepted in, in uh, Sydney then uh, than I found it was in, in the USA when I came here, you know, 20 years later. So that was really interesting. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, that uh, we want our students to see is that addiction is a mental health issue. It's a health issue, just like any other, you know, and, and people don't look down on you for taking blood pressure medication or diabetes medication, you know. So 
Why do they look down on you for taking medication to battle something as serious and, and all-encompassing as substance use disorders? So uh, it's really, and look, some of our students walk into our program on day one with, with some of that bias, Jeff, they do. And, um, you know, so that, there's some interesting discussions in class, you know, around that. But uh, it's just so important to get rid of that old-fashioned way of looking at it and to realize we have to utilize all the tools that we have in our arsenal. It's surprising that we still have a level of medication-assisted treatment bias here in Connecticut when the APPS Foundation was one of the original methadone programs when the Nixon administration allowed for that uh, for they to come and and they've often been kind of vilified, but yet the FQHC model is based on the methadone uh, OTP model where everything's accessible under one roof. Yes, so it, yeah, it, it's and that's it's kind of interesting. Yeah, the App Foundation that, actually had been one of our partners right from day one. So uh, placing our students, so we we really uh, appreciate them. In the community college level, where they're teaching drug and alcohol counseling courses one of the things that they address very early is the medication assisted treatment bias. And so that I think that the educational system is, is really making a move to challenge these opinions. I was at a conference in Worcester when Michael Botticelli was speaking and he was then the director uh, of the office of national drug control policy. And he very clearly said to this group of 200 people, um, if you doubt the efficacy of medication assisted treatment, that's fine. Just keep your mouth shut and do your job. In other words, don't spread the bias. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of interesting. Well, I think, you know, we're hopeful that graduates of our program, and as you said, similar programs like the DOC program, um, you know, they're going to be people that are out there spreading the gospel, if you will. And so I think you are going to see, uh, and I, I think we're already starting to see it on the ground, you know, at a lot of agencies where they're, they're much more accepting of a harm reduction approach than they would have been, say, five years ago. Several years ago, I had met with, uh, I was in Washington, D.C., and I had met with um, the person who ultimately was the lobbyist for Hazelden, and they were incorporating buprenorphine into some of their outpatient programs because they were seeing young people leaving the inpatient programs in, a, in the, the safety of that environment and getting into the community and struggling. So they finally, so for Hazelden to grasp that that was a big step for them, and they just wanted some advice out of out of implement certain things. So several of us were meeting with uh, their representative in DC. Yeah, role models are important. Something you just mentioned and I, uh, about the HRSA grant, and it leads to a question that, that interests me about a lot of, of clinical programs, or all clinical programs, is clinical programs are often difficult for adult learners to kind of get into their schedule because of the requirement of an internship or field placement. And I um, I know of one educational program that doesn't has a clinical program with no field placement, and we don't accept their credits because of that. But it is a challenge, but it's absolutely necessary. Can you talk about the importance of that requirement of having a field placement requirement? Absolutely. Well, I mean, we we just thought that was essential right from day one of of building this program. Um, you know, certainly that was the advice we got as well. But from our own experience, you know, you know, myself as a professional, how much learning you do um, when you're a student, but you're in a placement where you're observing others and you get to ask questions and you don't have, you know, lots of responsibilities because you're not uh, a paid employee. So internships are, are terrific experiences. Ours is uh, six months. Um, 10 to 15 hours a week. 
um, and you, you get on-site supervision from your um, field supervisor, but you also get supervision with our WCSU um, clinical um, faculty. So, um, you know, we hope that that's a really good experience. And certainly the, the students' feedback um, is, it's just great. It's just, they're excited. They're just learning so many things. Their eyes are open to, to and sometimes, you know, they, they do have difficult experiences and, uh, and wouldn't quite say traumatic, but stress, stressful experiences, you know, but for them to come back then and talk about that in uh, their supervision group is, is fantastic. And then it, it shares that information and that experience with the other students, you know, which I think is a really good part of, of the internship experience as well. So, um, you know, we think it's really important. And as I say, right now, having this HRSA grant to be able to actually give our students a stipend while they're out on internship is uh, remarkable. Got to got to give the federal government a lot of kudos for that one. And, and you can say traumatic. One of my responsibilities as an intern was to do the DBT skills group. So it was more of a case of these are really difficult people to deal with. We know the intern because I was also employed there. I did extra hours. Let's get the intern to do it. And it was some of the best experience, um, or as my supervisor called, the significant learning experience. <laughs> but it was difficult. But it was yeah. valuable, so valuable. We had a student um, who was working at an agency in New York City when that um, individual was going around attacking individuals, uh, you know, the knife attacks. Yeah. And uh, they think he showed up at their agency, you know, so that was really uh, traumatic. I can imagine it's nice. I can watch Bill Miller a hundred times do motivational interviewing techniques with somebody on film. And even if it's a real client, but until I'm doing it with somebody that I've never met before, not a fellow student or a coworker until I'm sitting with someone that I don't know, never met. That's where you kind of learn how to, to roll with things. So to speak. Oh, absolutely. You know, and it, that's such a interesting experience that, because I've, you know, just been teaching graduate students now for, you know, these last two years. And before that, it was always undergraduate. So I just, I'd forgotten, like, the, the one thing they will say is like, well, you know, they're asking me to run a group next week. You know, how can I run a group? You know, I don't know anything about helping people. We haven't covered that in class yet. And I'm like, yes, we have. We've done reflection and we've done, you know, attending, listening and, you know, you know, this stuff. And, and uh, I say, look, you always feel like a fake. We all do. Like our first experiences, you know, often for like the first few months, you know, you just like, you just, you feel like you're, you're, you're faking it, but you have to jump in and get that experience and start off before you can, you can start down this uh, path to becoming uh, a professional. As a person who majored in group work in social work school, um, I love people that are skilled in group because I think we miss a lot of opportunities when we're just doing simple check-in groups, which, you know, uh, for organizations aren't spending the time and money to train people on group process and things like that. And it's really not as much as I'd like to see. It, it's not their role, but I think that it's missed in a lot of programs, the inability uh, to kind of manage a group. There's only one way to do it. You can understand what's going on. Um, for me, I did it in reverse. I was doing groups as an undergrad uh, without understanding what was going on, just kind of winging it. And then all of a sudden I started to learn about process and power and control, you know, norming, forming, storming, adjourning and all of that. And I was like, okay, that explains it. So it was <laughs> yeah. in reverse. Yeah. Um, Interesting. 
yeah, I knew why I looked like a fool in group instead of just looking like a fool. <laughs> um, but it's okay. That I it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I bounced back, as you can exactly. tell. Exactly. <laughs> um, one of the things that I really think is important um, is to understand the science behind what we do. When we're doing something, I think it's important to know why we're doing it. And for many, that's missing. Um, putting on your researcher hat. Can you tell us why it's important to kind of have a good understanding of current research? Well, absolutely. Um, and again, that's something that is in every course in our program as students are reading original research. Again, they don't always like that. They look at a 20-page research paper and, and their eyes start rolling. Um, but I always say, hey, you've got an abstract for a reason. That, <laughs> that's going to give you a clue to what's, to what's in there. But you have to be a lifelong learner in this field, right? I mean, I think in any profession, but in our field in particular, like, you know, I didn't know anything about fentanyl 10 years ago. We weren't incorporating that into our training programs. And you just have to be really able to um, get up to speed quickly on, on, on things that are happening. Uh, you know, we've just discussed the evolution of um, MAT, you know, within the field and, and uh, realizing its importance and the, the evidence that's out there for its effectiveness. Um, so we want our students to be uh, lifelong learners. And, and one of the great pieces of feedback really that we've gotten is that students are like, wow, it is, it is really amazing to be able to learn this and understand and realize that it's not as threatening and, and to realize, you know, both, you know, what they can get out of research, but also some of its limitations. I mean, research has some limitations as well. And sometimes some research can get pretty narrowly focused without real clinical implications. But, um, you know, being able to uh, read it, understand it, stay up to date with it, I think is a really uh, such an important skill for lifelong learning. I think it's important too. one of the, the things that's not hard to grasp. You just have to look at it with a critical eye is when you're looking at the sample that's being researched and things. And I'll use an example of, of, of what Marsha Linehan used for her initial research in DBT and what Lisa Najibich did for seeking safety in her original thing, that they're two very different samples. Um, Lisa had a very wide sample of uh, gender mixes, some, you know, much more cultural competence, so to speak, still limited. But when you look at Marsha Linehan's, it was a very specific group of, of women from the Seattle area, Pacific Northwest, with that were from specific socioeconomic backgrounds. So her sample size was only about, I think, 60 or so, but it, was, it wasn't especially varied culturally. So the fact that DBT is as effective as it is, it wasn't designed necessarily to that kind of took, the research didn't show that it would be. It showed who it would be effective for. And I think that's important when we look at things so we can understand the, the basics of research. And we know that not every intervention works with every person all of the time. But when you look and say, oh, this is something that the target group is adolescent males, I, I got to remember that because it may be something that we can put into place. That, no, there I are think, little things like that that we pick up. Absolutely. I think that's it. And it's interesting, you know, when we designed this program, um, because it's one year full-time, two year part-time, um, you know, it's not a research-based program. We, we don't want to teach um, them to be researchers. That's not the focus of this program. And yet the feedback that we're hearing from our students is that them understanding research is such an important part of their learning outcome. And we have them um, do a master's project, which is an applied project. But, you know, you have to do a literature review first and understand 
what the evidence shows before you can put your program together and then and then try it out, which is a great experience for them, you know, to actually do it hands on. Um, and then we have uh, a program development and evaluation course. And again, what we're hoping is for LADCs in Connecticut um, and elsewhere, I guess, is you know they'll they'll rise to ranks of responsibility in their organization where it's going to be up to them to look at are the programs efficacious or not. And you know there are some really good and effective ways to do that. And then there's some really terrible, crappy ways to do that. So we want to teach them how to how to do it well. I have a colleague um, out in the Pacific Northwest, um, Dr. Bob Lynn, who's done a lot of work at Rutgers, and his focus is on outcomes. So we'll see, and it's kind of a funny thing that he does on LinkedIn, people advertise, right? My program does this and we have that, and he'll always say, great, what are the outcomes? Great, what are the outcomes? And he'll list things, but he says, using evidence-based practices is not an outcome. Client feedback, alumni involvement is not an outcome. Right. Um, so critical thinking, we have to look at, you're saying it works. How do you show it works? How can you prove that? That's right. Um, and when Patricia Reamer was the commissioner of the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, I was at a conference and she was speaking at, at the Yale Perch. She said to program leaders, if you don't show me output, don't ask me for input. <laughs> you know, we're only going to pay for what you show me works. And I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's frustrating in our field because you look at some of the long-term treatment outcomes and, you know, it's like 30%, you know, follow-up and uh, that are that are abstinent. Or, and again, that how you define um, a treatment outcome, you know, is it abstinence? Is it, you know, lower drug use? You know, how much is, is really significant? For how long? You know, all those sort of questions are, are really important and they need to be defined up front. You can't like make it up later on as you go along. Yeah, and research tells us things that we don't know. Um, it may strengthen what we know, it may challenge what we know, but it tells us things that we don't know. Uh, very recently, a group called the Chicago Social Drinking Project did a longitudinal study about drinking habits and things. And what they found is that a number of individuals who who's drinking in that, that study group progressed over the years to problematic, and they were looking at some of the causes and the, the trauma and things like that. Many of them were just individuals who enjoyed drinking so much and it ultimately became a problem. So it threw a wrench into what we believe. Now, it doesn't change the fact that so many people have a base of trauma that kind of led to their use, but it shows that not everybody. There are some people who, for whatever reason, um, had a problem drinking and it wasn't related to anything that we imagined. And, uh, you know, I thought it was fascinating to to have that um, over time and it was longitudinal. Well, when I was at Rutgers, so again, you know, that that decade with ABBA, um, but, uh, you know, the research from um, England, I think it was out of the Maudsley Institute, where they did uh, a fairly long-term study of uh, individuals in recovery, and they found that, you know, pretty significant percentage just um, were able to really cut back on their drinking on their own, right, without any, like, they didn't go to therapy, they didn't go to any counseling, and they remained social drinkers and that was like such a challenging finding like they weren't you know they didn't meet the criteria for substance use disorder anymore um and uh at Rutgers you know we were studying controlled drinking as as a potential outcome and uh you know we worked with the Sabells you know and and the amount of criticism and vitriol and attack that that they were under for even suggesting that as as a potential treatment outcome but as you say 
that's research, right? You've got to stay open to what the research tells you. And if there's some interesting things out there, you should really take a look at them and try and understand them, not just you know condemn them and say, well, that doesn't fit our model, therefore it can't be possibly happening. And even if it's something that you don't necessarily agree with, right. it's important to have an understanding of what is said so you can challenge your own your own thought process, whether it strengthens it or or weakens it, whatever it may be. Um, but I want to look at things that I disagree with because I want to know why. I have to understand why I disagree with them. I know. I enjoyed that conversation you and I had about the, the new new book by the gentleman, I forget his name, that, that is talking about um, controlled uh, opioid oh, Dr. Use. Carl Hart? Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, he's that's a bit of a, a, a that, instigator, and I and I know him that to be that way. And yeah, and it's very challenging. But as you say, you know, maybe there's something of value there if you if you take a. I haven't read the book yet. Have you? Yes, we and I we at the CCB actually did two groups of book discussion. We did uh, three sessions with each group to talk about parts of the book, and the reception of the book was tremendous. Not that necessarily people agreed with his premises. But they recognize that, you know, what he's saying here makes sense. He goes mm-hmm. in a different direction than I would. Right. But it's not just and it wasn't about, um, you know, it wasn't an advertisement for drug legalization. It was his experiences and and based on some research. Right. And so it was interesting and people really enjoyed it and enjoyed challenging themselves. And I could give anecdotes from uh, time that I spent with with Dr. Hart, which kind of made it a little more enjoyable because he's an instigator. He, you know, he was, we were speaking together at a conference in Salt Lake and he would say things and grin because he knew it was getting a rise out of people because that makes people think. Yeah. He would do well in my home country in Australia. We call them pot stirrers. And uh, it's, it's sort of a a cultural tradition that Australians are like that. (laughs) He didn't do too well uh, in, in the Philippines speaking about the drug war there. Duterte had people threatening to kill him. He had to get sneak out of the country. That, and I uh, emailed him when he got back. I said, I'm glad you're home safe. And he said, I've never, I've never felt that the Bronx was that safe until now. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. My wife is from the Bronx, so got to be careful. Don't make, don't make too many Bronx jokes. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, before I let you go, I have to touch on your role as a sports psychologist. Um, I don't know if my curiosity stems from back in the dark ages when I was an NCAA athlete. Um, you know, we had electric typewriters back then, <laughs> so <laughs> you know, for our writing projects. But can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that you may do in that role? Yeah, it's been a very fulfilling career, and it's so interesting because, as I say, I was trained in. Uh, addiction research. Um, I thought I was going to be a child clinical psychologist. I did my uh, internship at the Children's Psychiatric Center, my postdoc at the um, Youth Crime Victim Center at the Medical University of South Carolina. And sports psychology was like this, like almost hobby of mine. Like I was doing it on the, I did some research in it. I was again, growing up in Australia, you know, sport is like a religion. Um, And so I was just always very interested in the mental side of sports. And, uh, and then this, position came up at the USOC in at Colorado Springs, Colorado. And, uh, and I was fortunate enough to get it because they were looking for someone who was clinically trained and could work with all the young athletes that they had there. Uh, so my clinical child uh, training came in very handy. And um, yeah, and so I've been doing that for the rest of my career. And it's, um, it's just fascinating. And what's really exciting now is, is the um, increased awareness 
of mental health issues among athletes and, and athletes who are willing to come forward. Because I got to tell you, back in the 80s and 90s, it was one of the battles that we had in sports psychology was just to get recognition. Like people didn't want to talk about seeing a sports psychologist. Um, coaches looked down on it. They thought it was, you know, something wrong with the athlete. If they had to, uh, had to see, you know, a shrink, you know, one of my, my good friend, actually Bruce Ogilvie, the, the, you mentioned I got the Bruce Ogilvie award, but he said, we're stretches, not shrinks, right? We're trying to stretch the capabilities of athletes. So, uh, you know, we work on things like, uh, you know, the individual, um, management of, of stress under pressure, you know, being able to do the things well that you can do on the practice court, but being able to do them at Olympic trials or in the finals of a, you know, collegiate NCAA tournament. Um, we look at teamwork. Um, burnout is something that I've been really interested uh, in recently uh, because that's a big uh, problem in, in sports, particularly at, at the very high levels where uh, people get committed to a sport like gymnastics or figure skating, for example, uh, at a very young age. So um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a fantastic uh, career for me. And it's sort of, it's sort of interesting that at, at uh, 57, I, I transitioned to became the gra- director of this graduate program in, uh, in addiction counseling. It's, it's a interesting journey. You know, back in, in my day, it was the university would hire a motivational speaker to yeah. talk about visualizing yourself winning and all of that stuff. And it doesn't have any long-term effect. Um, but I think that's what like the the common perception was. But when you have individuals like in the NFL, Brandon Marshall came out and talked about his public his battle with borderline personality it was very public. And um, Dak Prescott from the Cowboys now, who's a very public face of the league, talking about issues with depression. We're starting to see discussions about it, and we'll ultimately see what role CTE plays in mental health issues and things um, when Junior say out the died in a car crash. So I think that it's it's understanding the, the whole of the person to make them not just better athletes, um, but more comfortable in their own skin is, is a really amazing thing. That's always been my perspective, that it's a holistic um, view of things. You know, you have to be um, mentally healthy in, in all, all areas of your life to perform and function at a high level. And uh, it's really interesting, you know, analogous to what you and I have been talking about this, this whole podcast is um, I served on the executive committee of the, you know, division of sports psychology of APA. And, you know, they're hiring now, they hired just uh, recently three clinical mental health counselors at the USOC, the Olympic committee. Um, most colleges are now hiring clinical mental health counselors uh, out of their, either their athletic departments or sometimes their counseling department working with their athletic department. And this, they're finding the same thing that you and I have been talking about, the lack of well-trained professionals. Because again, in clinical and counseling and even social work programs, there's often very few training opportunities where you work a lot with athletes. Um, so it, you know, there's, there's a real need in the field for well-trained people right now. We talk um, uh, you know, a lot about the struggles that people have. And, and one of the individuals has been in the news a lot lately um, uh, Miss Jenner, you know, we look at the focus that an athlete has to have going back to 1976 and the years before, as Bruce Jenner was training for the decathlon, ultimately being the gold medalist, the world's greatest athlete, whatever the term they want to call, um, while struggling with gender identity issues throughout the time, the amount of focus that 
that was shown is absolutely incredible, but it also shows the difficulties that people's lives get in the way of their while they're preparing for these great things. They're humans and they have human issues. They're not just athletic machines, but uh, you know, that was the reason I got into track and field was because of the 76 Olympics when I was a kid. Um, and so when I think about when she made her transition, I keep going back to the focus that she must've had to be able to say, I need to do this, but even with all these other things going on in my life. Yeah. And you know, I think you need people, like you said, Brandon Marshall and, and uh, role models to step forward uh, and talk about it. And then what I think you're seeing now, certainly with the young athletes that I work with, it's just much more acceptance of, you know, the role of their own mental health and being able to come to terms with that. And, uh, and, you know, some really healthy things in terms of speaking out, you know, about abuse of athletes. And you're starting to see that in sports like gymnastics now where, you know, honestly, uh, uh, I wrote the book, the cheers and the tears, um, as, um, the subtitle of that book was a healthy alternative to the dark side of youth sports. And I, in that book, I was talking about the dark side of youth sports and how um, athletes can be abused and uh, manipulated by um, adults and people in authority. And that was even before some of these scandals like the Jerry Sandusky scandal and so on really came to light. But I was already seeing it as a clinician. And uh, now athletes and uh, their families are standing up and saying, look, this is just unacceptable. You can't have this this sort of a culture where you're physically and emotionally and psychologically abusing people in the name of perfection and, and high performance. And I think that's a really positive step forward. You know, when I look at uh, one of my early podcasts was with Murphy Jensen, who was the 1993 French Open doubles champion, he and his brother, Luke and Murphy Jensen. One of the yes, things that yeah. he and I talked about um, was not feeling good enough. And here he was days after being, you know, being the best in the world, winning a major saying, I don't deserve this. It's going to come crashing around on me. And ultimately he it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. His drinking and drug use made it crash around him because he didn't feel worthy. And it was just the, the, to hear him say that was, was affirming to me, from because I think that's something we all you know people experience in when they've achieved some level of success, whether they somebody who's first in their family to graduate college. But it, it was just a fascinating conversation, and I go back that I think of that often. Um, and it's more common than you think. When I was at with the U.S. Olympic Committee, one of the programs I was most excited about and proud of was the career assistance program for athletes. And what we heard from athletes time and time again, and these like, you know, gold medal winners and, and multiple Olympians, it's like, well, now what? You know, like all I do is sports. Like I'm no good at other things in life. So what other careers are out there for me? And, and you know, everyone else is looking at them like, oh, my goodness, this is like a demigod, you know, like an Olympian. Uh, and so, you know, working on transferable skills and taking what they've learned from sport and being able to apply that to the rest of their lives was for them to start understanding that and put it into practice, that was tremendously fulfilling. And I think we need to see role models of that. Though. We need more Alan Pages, who played at football in Notre Dame, was an NFL Hall of Famer, um, but is a judge now in Minnesota. You know, was an attorney and a judge. That's a great success story, and less of the Todd Marinovich stories, who was as a young kid, his father put everything into making him being a quarterback, and he couldn't handle the pressure of it. He had yeah. the skills 
but his he had been beaten down so much he didn't have coping skills to to deal with failure which ultimately comes and ryan leaf another colleague of mine who talked about his failures and not knowing how to handle them so yeah. which ultimately led to his demise yeah yeah people yeah ryan leaf just placed in impossible situations right you know yeah he said he had never failed until right. he got to the nfl and yeah. he didn't know how to handle it uh trevor lawrence you know just drafted number one he's never lost a regular season football game in his life High school well, or college, that's, that's never lost a never, <laughs> lost, and now he's with the Jacksonville Jaguars. I'm like, good luck change. with that. <laughs> yeah. um, let me just kind of bring it back. Although this is really interesting to me, um, our time is short. So, how do people get in touch with you for more information on the addiction studies program uh, at Western, or if they want to reach out to you with other questions? Sure, absolutely. So, our website is www.wcsu.edu/psychology. And um, if you go to that, you'll see a prominent uh, link for the MS in Addiction Studies program. Uh, our phone number is 203-837-8459. And um, you're always welcome to send me an email if you want to ask about anything related to this podcast. It's Murphy S M U R P H Y S at wcsu.edu. And just to go through that to make sure that we've got it right, your website is www wcsu.edu slash psychology correct phone number is 203-837-8459 right and email is murphy s at wcsu.edu that's it excellent any final thoughts before we finish up well i've just really enjoyed having this conversation with you jeff and uh as i said i think a little while ago it's just so fascinating to me that you know, at 57, we started talking about this program and, and here it is six years later and we've got this wonderful program and great students. I enjoy them so much and, and uh, I learned from them, you know, so much because oh, they've, they've had such incredible life experiences, many of them. And one of the rewarding things is seeing people who've been, you know, working in this field for 10 years or more that are just coming back to get their master's and, and being able to move on to more responsibility. And um you know, like you, I lost a brother to overdose uh, in 1993. My brother, Chris, who was only 18 months younger than me, and, and we were incredibly close. And, uh, and you know, there was a partner there, and, and um, they didn't know what to do and panicked. And I, I, I think, just like you, you know, like what would have happened, like if MAT had been around then, you know, um, if Narcan had been around then, you know, like he could have been with us today. And, and uh, I, not a day go goes by i don't i don't feel that loss so uh it's rewarding to be able to give something back when i can see somebody change and to know that i may have had a small part in it, it is really gratifying and from my position now when i see and can impact counselors who themselves each impact 60 people um it, it's really uh, it's humbling actually when you think about it so it is it is humbling i appreciate your time and i'm definitely going to take you up on the Indian food offer you made several <laughs> weeks ago once we can get out and do those things. Um, yeah, I think that's starting to happen. I, I went to a ball game last night. so I'm still, I, went, I went to an indoor restaurant this weekend, so uh, it's, it's happening. 
I am not that brave yet, but I'll get there. <laughs> Everybody, that's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Dr. Shane Murphy of Western Connecticut State University for joining us. And I hope you found this inter uh, discussion interesting and useful. We again extend our gratitude to Mountainside Treatment Center for their generous support. We here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. Please don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, uh, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. And we'll catch you next time as we talk to Dr. Meg Patterson of Texas A&M University about an interesting recovery support pathway. Until then, everybody, 